This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Our most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours, or at least it was for most of the day, yep, uh, second most read, I should say, at this hour. It's about how President Trump gave most Americans a tax cut and they didn't even notice. Laura Davison is tax reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us right now from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Hey, Laura, good to have you here with Jason and myself. So tell me a little bit about um, your reporting and what you found out. Yeah, so there's a really big spread between the number of people that got a tax cut uh, with, with the this 2017 overhaul. It's about two thirds of people to the number of people who think they got a tax cut, which is about uh, you know about 20 17 percent of people, depending which poll you look at. So this is really shows. Um, Two things. One, that um, Republicans have totally lost the messaging war here on what what this tax law did and who it would help, and that most people would see a tax cut in addition to large corporations and and wealthy individuals seeing a tax cut. You know, Democrats won there. The second is they did a, a effectively a poor job of sort of rolling out the tax cut. So instead of getting a big refund, which is what a lot of people were expecting, uh, the tax cut was sort of doled out in little chunks throughout the year. So there was basically less taken out of people's paycheck, but it was not that much. So it was, you're talking $20, $30 per paycheck uh, by at the, at the end of the year, which would amount to a larger refund they you know, had spent, and it, it felt different than, than getting a big check at the end of the year. And so, Laura, give us the numbers. I mean, but, but people did, did get a tax cut, and it was just too small for them to notice? Is that the idea? Yes, yeah. So you're looking, I mean, you across the board, you're seeing, um, you know, kind of for, for lower income uh, people, you know, maybe a tax cut of about $1,500, $2,000. You get up uh, into, you know, kind of upper middle incomes, $200,000 to $500,000, seeing tax cuts around three or $4,000, you know, and if you get higher, and depending on, you know, whether income's coming from capital gains or, or you get the special uh, tax cut for, for pass-through businesses, you know, even larger amounts. Uh, but it was just, you know, getting $50, you know, every yeah. two weeks versus getting, you know, $1,000 or $15,000 at the end of the year. Uh, it's, it feels very different. All right. So it's interesting. So as we do analysis, I mean, I do wonder what history is going to tell us. Was this a good tax overhaul or maybe not so much? So there's definitely some changes in here that, that Democrats and Republicans agree needed to happen. You know, some things in terms of changing the way that the uh, the standard deduction works, you know, doubling that so more people are able to file on a simpler form. That sort of has, has bipartisan uh, support. Uh, where I think the the truth will be is is did this promote economic growth the way that republicans said it would and and did or did it you know basically did we get enough bang for our buck here and right now the the jury's still out it's still early but you know the law is is a long way away from paying for itself as republicans had said it would um you know larry kudlow uh, the white house chief economic advisor has has been stating this but that the, the, the facts aren't backing that up so we're going to see you know somewhere between 1.5 trillion to 2 trillion dollars added to the deficit as a result of this tax law and uh, you know I, we were at a 
kind of the top of a, of a cycle or, or somewhere near it. Uh, when this law was passed, a lot of companies are saying, look, I, I w- didn't need to hire extra workers. I didn't need to buy more equipment. I had plenty of money. So they, you know, are just sort of keeping the, the money on the balance sheet, you know, and that doesn't really promote the growth that Republicans were hoping for. Right. And we saw a lot of stock buybacks and, and whatnot, as you mentioned, so that maybe the behavior wasn't exactly what was anticipated. It's also interesting to me, Carol mm-hmm. and Laura, to think about this story in the context of another story that I, I read over the weekend, a Bloomberg story that talks about the upper middle class essentially feeling like they're quote unquote left behind. I don't know if you saw that, but it was so interesting because so much of this, and this clearly comes through in your reporting, Laura, is about perception. You know, right. the, the numbers are one thing, but the feel of, wait, maybe like, the, so much. the people even richer than I am are sort of getting something that, that I'm not. And that plays into the politics of all this. Yeah, exactly. I do wonder, you know, Laura, what will be the reverberations, right, come 2020 when folks go to vote and whether or not, you know, it's all about, do I feel better? Am I making more money? Do I feel like there's more money in my pocket? That kind of thing. And it, we're already seeing um, a lot of, of anger about taxes. Uh, you know, some of the the members from from high tax state Republicans, you know, from New York, New Jersey, California, who voted for the law, um, in kind of these purple areas um, where people were really mad about the, the the limitation on the state and local tax mm-hmm, deduction. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of those members uh, get voted out. They're they're going home. And what you see from presidential candidates are you know tax increases on the rich. Whether it's you know Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. Uh, Elizabeth Warren also has a plan to raise um, the corporate tax rate. Bernie Sanders has been talking about expanding the estate tax. So you're seeing something. This is, uh, you know, Democrats are really sort of capitalizing on this anger that people have after the Republican tax law and and turning that into to policies that they're running on. So interesting. Laura Davison is tax reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down in the nation's capital. I think about this, Carol, in the context of the Overton window modern monetary wow, theory, you know, yeah. like all of these things that we're talking about as it relates to taxes, to monetary policy. These are the sorts of things presumably the Fed is looking at. I feel like I have Peter Coy sitting on my shoulder. You do, you do. Well, <laughs> But what's also fascinating is I still hang on to the idea that we did a tax cut in what was a pretty good economy. So I do think about the reduced um, money going into the government and the, and the shortfalls and what that's going to potentially mean going forward, especially if we start to have any kind of economic downturn, right? Your tax revenues are already down, they'll go down even more. And I do wonder about the repercussions, especially for programs, social programs, right? What the, you know, what will be the impact uh, in that regard? You know, one of the other reasons I'm thinking about Overton Window, there's an episode just of like saying Billions oh. this season uh, <laughs> whose title was the Overton. the Overton Window. So I feel like, okay, this has really been mainstreamed, at least if it's uh, on Billions. So, art you imitating know, life, life, life imitating, imitating art. art. You it never know. And and billions, you know. I had to get a reference in there. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Monday. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, we are Bloomberg Radio. All right, so we came into this Monday morning anticipating numbers from Goldman and City, and at least the initial headlines, some of them from Goldman seem pretty positive. Investors disagreed heartily. Goldman uh, down 3.4% at the moment. Carol, uh, Citigroup right. also reporting earnings. They've been bouncing around down right now one-tenth of 1%. So what to make of all of this? That's why we have Allison Williams. She is Senior Financial Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, Allison, make us smart. What's going on here? Why aren't investors uh, more excited? 
So I think to, to some extent we have to take it into the context from Friday, right? So um, J.P. Morgan had a very solid quarter, although I think a lot of that was execution. And um, so the stock had a big move, sort of bringing all the stocks with it. Um, Wells Fargo a negative performer, and today you're seeing a little bit of a reversal in those trends. So what we're seeing, I think, across the banks this quarter is really a difference in execution. So the reports today, um, solid reports, but really driven by cost cutting, less on the revenue side. Um, so JP Morgan, as I said, executing across its businesses, Wells Fargo um, showing uh, some of the revenue pain. Um, you know, at this point in the cycle, it's really loan growth. That's the key differentiator across the banks. So Wells Fargo is still having those issues with the CEO. And I think uh, there's just a, a lot of uncertainty until that gets resolved. And then uh, today, um, you know, Goldman Sachs, I think, uh, fixed income better, equity trading a little worse, I would say. The positive is the environment looks good going in, into mm-hmm. into the second quarter. Trading's more constructive. We heard that across. Backlog down a little, but still at historically high levels. That's a positive. Um, you know, however, we're going to want to see how their results shape up as other companies report. And then finally, Citigroup. Um, again, you know, beating on the cost sides, so that's less favorable. So wait, um, I have to jump in because when you first said it's all about execution, I have to say it's the one thing like when a CEO comes on and they're like, well, we've been executing well. I'm like, well, that's your job, right? So, is, but but that, is that what you're saying? That basically Jamie Dimon runs J.P. Morgan really, really, and, he, and his team, and I'm sure he would concede that as well. And the other guys, he, maybe not so much. <laughs> what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but do you know and, what I'm saying? To, when you and say to ex- some extent, and, and that is what I'm saying, and to some extent, you know, with Wells Fargo and, and, and Goldman Sachs, they're sort of dealing with, you know, you might call it some legacy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wells Fargo without a CEO at the moment, you know, since the 2016 um, disclosure of sales practice issues, yeah. right. sort of been trying to get that behind that. And, um, you know, we've, we've had regulator criticism. We had another CEO step down. And I think... You know, until they can get, um, until they have a new CEO in post and we know the strategy, it just, there's just going to be a lot of questions there. And then also, you know, the big thing with Wells Fargo is taking down the net interest revenue guidance um, be- just because of the dovish Fed, because of certain factors that affect their balance sheet, but they don't have the loan growth that JP Morgan has. So JP Morgan and Citigroup keeping their guidance because they feel like the loan growth is really going to help them. You know, Wells Fargo is not in the same position in terms of growing its balance sheet. And so look ahead to the rest of the group. What are we going to be You sort of alluded to this earlier, but what do we need to hear either in individual cases or in cases where maybe the whole group can come back up uh, based on the names we still need to hear from Morgan Stanley among them, right? So uh, the keys uh, for me are going to be Bank America, what they say about their net interest margin Mm -hmm. Uh, tomorrow. They're the most rate sensitive among the banks. Um, they were sort of one of the bigger winners from rate increases. Uh, so we're going to want to hear what they have They've to say. They've had quite a run, too, man. Well, Up the, Fed, the, the Fed rate. has increased rates, yeah. right? And so that has helped them. Mm. But in terms of loan growth, we think that's also an interesting me- metric because they are the you know responsible growth strategy. So we saw uh, you know solid loan growth at J.P. Morgan, not uh, what we've seen in some of the industry numbers. There are some, some reasons why. They wouldn't match that. But again, with Bank America, obviously we want loan growth to drive earnings, but we want healthy quality loan growth. We are late in the cycle. So I think their growth uh, may be an indicator on what we're seeing in the economy. The other thing that we've seen across the banks is um, you know, credit 
costs coming in a bit higher than expected. You know, over the last uh, couple of years, we've seen that more in provisions. We saw some energy um, issues on the commercial side, but this quarter we're really seeing it on uh, the consumer side. So it's so at Wells Fargo and Citi, charge us coming in. And again, we're coming from very, very low levels, right. but that's something we're watching at Bank of America. Then Morgan Stanley, obviously we're going to be looking at the trading results. They've, um, again, been executing very well in recent years. They are the leader in the equities yeah. business, which right. has some tough comparisons, um, but they beat revenue several quarters in a row last quarter they missed that was sort of a rarity so we're going to want to see um if we get a snap back there all right allison williams senior financial research analyst at bloomberg intelligence doobie brothers pretty nice right love it no taking us back um china gotta talk about china today it's considering a u.s request to shift some tariffs on some key agricultural goods to other products so that the Trump administration can sell a trade deal as a win for farmers. They're all thinking about the 2020 election. This is according to folks in the know. There's a lot going on. Sean Donnan covers all things trade for us here at Bloomberg News. He's senior trade reporter at Bloomberg. He joins us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington. And Sean, by the way, has a story in the current issue of Business Week magazine looking at farmers' trade and President Trump specifically. That issue on newsstands now and at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg. Sean. (laughs) hello (laughs) hello so you are the person our go-to guy when it comes to the guru the guru the trade guru so where are we what's the latest you know we're in that end game but that end game in these china talks is going to last a while Hmm. and one of the ways we can see that we're in the end game is when the trump administration starts making requests like the one we reported today which is about managing the politics of this and saying okay china you got us when you retaliated against us and you hit the farmers who all voted for donald trump or largely voted for donald trump uh you did kind of cause a political problem for us we get it but now you know we're friends again we're about to cut a deal and we need you to hit someone else uh, if you're going to keep these tariffs on. So do us a favor. Let's cut that deal. Leave the farmers out of it. And that really is all about Donald Trump and the big thing he's got to prove in 2020 when it comes to trade. And that is that this was all worth it. Mm-hmm. You travel around farm country, people have really been hit hard by this. Uh, so let's is- talk about that if we can, Sean, okay. because that, that was the basis of your story last week, which was a great read in the magazine. Really recommend people check that out because it, you put it into context that, that people uh, really understand. It's about apples. It's about soybeans. And you know these are real tangible products. And these are real people who are making, I'll say it again, real choices uh, to invest or not invest based on this trade war. Yeah. And that's, I mean, one of the things we document in the piece is one of the economic impacts that doesn't get talked a lot about. And that is, you know, we talk often about the cost of tariffs, the cost of steel and what it's done to uh, to, to what it costs to, to, to buy a steel beam for a new building. It, they're more expensive as a result of tariffs. But what we don't talk about very often is the kind of damper that this, these trade wars have put on investment. And that's really what you see in farm country. If you don't get the revenues from selling your soybeans over 
overseas. You're not going to buy that new combine uh, that you need. Uh, and that means that's a, a lack of investment in your own productivity, but it's also an economic impact for the broader economy. In the case of apples, we talk about the Cosmic Crisp apple, which is my new favorite apple. And, <laughs> and, and really what we're seeing is apple growers not renovating their orchards, not planting these new miracle apples at the rate that they should be because, and that's really an investment in the future, and why aren't they doing it? Because of the trade wars. So, you know, these the, the trade wars, we, we tend to think of them as a real short-term impact in terms of soybeans not moving to China, but that has consequences for the broader economy, and that's really what we're seeing. And if you're going into 2020 and you're President Trump and you want to prove that your new aggressive approach to, to, to tariffs and trade uh, has really yielded something, you first of all need to repair the damage, and that means getting China to tariff something else. So would this be considered, if indeed this is what happens and how it plays out, um, Sean, this would be a step forward to a final U.S.-China deal? Possibly. <laughs> nice I mean, look, there. I, no, I think it, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of, we are in this end game, but in yeah. trade, in, in trade, negotiations. You know, it's not like tax day. There is no April 15th in trade negotiations. Uh, it's, there's, these things drag on for a while. And, and it could drag on for certainly a few more weeks, uh, could drag on into the summer. Uh, we just don't know. And a lot of that is going to depend what the Chinese uh, do with these kinds of requests, whether they decide that, hey, Donald, you've got, you know, you're asking for us to help you out with the farmers. Well, we'll do that for you. But we need just one more thing. And so what is the biggest sticking point, you think, from the Chinese side of this? I mean, and and what do they really need to get out of this so that they, too, can sort of declare a win? Well, they want to see all the tariffs go away. And one of the reasons uh, the Trump administration is asking this is that it isn't prepared to make all the tariffs go away. It wants to leave at least this initial $50 billion uh, tranche that it had that it put in place last year in place, and it's just asking the Chinese to retaliate against something else. So that's the big priority for the Chinese. They want to they want to go back to, to to the way things were before Donald Trump started imposing these tariffs, and we'll see where we end up. And that's going to get into what the Trump administration gets out in terms of reforms from the Chinese. Above all, they want to get back to to, right. to doing business as usual. But Sean, is it? You know, we keep talking about, and we've got guests coming in who say, you know, this is an opportunity for the United States to really do a smart, more relevant trade deal with the Chinese, considering everything that's going on. China's, you know, creating collaborations and alliances with other countries, other trading blocks around the world. So I do wonder, you know, is this a step uh, in the right direction towards a better, more relevant trade deal? Well, these are the details we're going to find out when we get that final deal, really, because it, it's it's if we're talking about tariffs and which ones stay and which ones go, those aren't the things that are going to get you a meaningful trade deal. It really is those reforms right. in China until we know it feels more like horse about trading the, a little exactly, bit. Exactly, right that's the horse trading in, in, in the kind of final stages. There's a big question over how you enforce a deal. That's something else that Secretary Mnuchin was talking about at the weekend, and you raised the possibility that the Chinese uh, could enforce, uh, you know, what the U.S. does, which could raise some problems for U.S. companies. So, you know, all of this is going to come together in the end, and it's going to get back to that to, to that fundamental question of was it all worth it? And right now. We don't know. And meanwhile, Sean, only about 30 seconds left, but there are other trade deals that aren't quite done yet, including the USMCA, right? 
Right, absolutely. So the USMCA, this is the new NAFTA that, that, that Donald Trump uh, negotiated last year, wrapped up last year with great fanfare, still needs to be approved by Congress. Unclear whether that will happen this summer. He's also got a negotiation with the EU that's right. going to get underway in the weeks to come. And today the Japanese are in town here in Washington to start negotiations there. There's still a lot on the plate for trade and a lot of reasons for you to have me back on the show in the future. I'm just thinking they haven't figured out the acronym for USMCA, Sean, and that's just holding it up. Usmica. Usmica was there. There was, you know, some people were putting it to the YMCA song for a yeah. while there. I don't think that was going so well. It's not as, you know, that could NAFTA be the holdup. That could actually be the holdup. That's what I'm thinking. And you know what we're starting to see is a lot more people call it NAFTA. There oh, you go. See. That's a sick burn. <laughs> All right, Sean Donnan. Always get. There's always an excuse to uh, have you on the show. Senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, at one time, the big gun maker, Smith & Wesson, was considering a fingerprint lock built into every gun. Sounded like a really good idea, and yet it didn't happen. In the technology section this week of the magazine, Polly Mussens writes about the death of the smart gun. She is investigative reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us along with Joel Weber, who's, of course, Bloomberg Business Week editor. Polly and Joel joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio in New York. So I think about the whole world gets disrupted by uh, evolving technologies, more sophisticated technologies. But Polly, that hasn't quite happened in the gun world. Why? No, and not for lack of trying. You know, as long as 20 years ago, there was a conversation about having these kinds of technologies, but then a combination of a law that people considered very restrictive and the combination of the Second Amendment organizations lobbying against this kind of technology led us to a world where we don't have any smart guns. There's not a single one on the mainstream market. So how does this story come about, Joel? Polly raises her hand uh, <laughs> and actually says, I have a great idea. Yeah. So that's where it comes from. Um, and, and for real, like I think there's this great irony to this story, which is technology has really advanced basically every industry you can think of. And yet one industry has sort of been able to resist that. And so there's a curiosity gap there of like, what? why? Why? Right. Why? Right. And that's probably did some sleuthing to figure out why. Well, tell us what's... But, I mean, it's not like Smith & Wesson didn't look into it, right? No, they were big on it. Yeah. They were, yeah. They actually basically cut a deal with the Clinton administration in the year 2000 to invest about 2% of revenue into it, which would have been really substantial given the popularity of Smith & Wesson at the time. But that deal was uh, quickly dissolved once the NRA got a hold of it. They basically boycotted the company. They had their revenue drop about 40% percent immediately because the NRA told its members do not shop at Smith and Wesson. Smith and Wesson has cut a deal with the Clinton administration. The end. Done. And that's exactly what happened. The company ended up selling for basically pennies on the dollar shortly thereafter. And the NRA, not surprisingly, figures very prominently, as you mentioned, uh, into this narrative. Their ability to mobilize is really demonstrated in this incident as well, right? Absolutely. When you look at a law that was passed in the state of New Jersey that actually it aimed to get smart guns really going, but the reality is the way that the law was written was that once a smart gun was available for sale in the United States, it had to be sold in New Jersey. So basically the NRA and other Second Amendment rights groups... They wait, wait, did- explain that again. So once there was a smart gun out there, New Jersey mm-hmm. said... 
that's all we're going to sell. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. So even if it's sold in California and Maryland, wherever it is, if it's on the market, that's what New Jersey will turn to. So then when a gun was actually developed, and this particular firearm, it was reported it had a lot of different defects that people didn't like, it was being sold in those two states, and people really freaked out. They worried this is the only thing we're going to be able to sell. The NRA really jumped on that. You know, one of their publications actually published a review that called it disappointing and a potentially dangerous firearm. So from there you really had a big, big backlash from the community that's most likely to purchase a firearm. So what do you, when you, when we wrestle with all of this, and obviously the, we haven't been able to see real attempts to bring this to market. There are some bit players that are, are, are still kind of poking way at it, but what do you think the bigger takeaway is and, and, and where do we go forward with this? I think the biggest takeaway is what we often see in this space is that compromise is incredibly difficult. You know, in this case, the person that wrote the law actually basically wants it uh, changed. They don't even like the way that it happened. But then you see the the gun rights group saying, well, we don't like the law, but we don't like how you're going to change it. So there's just no place for compromise. But when we talk about making kind of a super gun or a smart gun, we're talking about maybe putting fingerprint technology, right? So it's just a case of whoever owns the, the gun, like we do it every day to log into our computer. They use their fingerprint, and that means that's the, they're the only ones who can use it. It's as simple as that, and it worked well? Well, it didn't work well. That was one of the issues. So what they were actually trying to use were RFID bracelets. So you'd have to have this little bracelet on you. It'd be about 15 inches away from the firearm, and the firearm could shoot. The issue was that you could actually use magnets to unlock the firearm. Wired ran a test, and they were able to do that. So not so smart yet. Exactly. And when it came to the fingerprint technology, that's what they're really aiming for. No one has put a ton of research and development dollars into it. So part of the reason it doesn't exist is because you haven't had a mammoth in the industry really put a lot of money behind it which makes me think jason uh, jason rather uh joel forgive me where's venture capitalists on this in silicon valley just about 30 seconds well i mean the to incentivize people and, and to have a project that didn't work sort of taints the well a little bit like yeah. how do you incentivize other people to do this right but so how do we get silicon valley interested no, or how does one? They've looked into seconds. it, but once you have this law in New Jersey that hasn't been changed, and once you have this political system that's really reluctant to change, might not go anywhere. You have reusable rockets. I'm just going to say. Right. <laughs> it's a great story, a must-read. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Business Week, of course, Polly Mossen. She's investigative reporter at Bloomberg News. Check it out on newsstands, on the Bloomberg, and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It's time for the drive to the close. Jeff Crumpleman is back with us, Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. He is based in Cincinnati, made his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio right here in New York City on this Monday. Nice to have you back with us. Great to be here. So you wake up in the morning. What's the first thing you want to know in terms of what's going on with global markets or some of the big global stories? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I hop on the treadmill a lot of mornings when I, I get going. 
And it's always nice just to see Dow futures up a little bit. (laughs) And then you do, you know, you just want to hit the major items. You know what's coming up. It could be a retail sales report. It could be the employment report. But anything that would be moving the market one way or the other. But U.S.-centric. I would say largely, however, you know, right now, if you ask me what would be some real risks out there, the data in China, I think, is very important. And that has domino effect for Europe and other areas that have had kind of a soft patch in here. So, no, you look at the industrial activity. We're going to have a big day on Wednesday with retail sales and numbers coming out of China. Yeah, you just, yeah, I, I shouldn't say it's only our world you right. know immediately yeah, it's global i i gotta think over the holidays uh going back to christmas time your heart rate might have been up a little bit when you were uh, on that treadmill even more than uh from the exercise although as you reminded us uh in some notes you shared with us before you stuck it out i mean and you were a voice back in december when things were really starting to trend downwards you said you know it maybe this isn't as bad for as long as people are fearing what gave you the confidence to kind of hold your hold your line there you know it really just was the data and it is so easy to get caught up in this wall of worry and i we're i embrace the wall of worry because that keeps people skeptical and, and cautious but we just didn't see it when you looked at the employment data unemployment claims the strength of the consumer the payroll data and all the signals, and there's, there's anywhere from a half a dozen to a dozen signals of recession. And that's what people were talking about back then, that we're going from robust to recession. We're going from great earnings to horrible. We just saw it in the middle. That's all. And, yes, it was moderating. Yes, it was slowing down. But there was nothing to suggest that we were moving seriously towards recession. It takes time to do that, and all the data was ticking in a pretty decent direction, and yet people wanted to get uh, concerned over, by, back then it was Fed and trade that took them there. So talk to us a little bit about some of the specific ideas that you find interesting. I'm just looking at a list that you shared with us. Um, you like consumer discretionary, and that's just based on you think they're going to stay workers, consumers, they're go- going to stay employed, they're yeah. still going to get, maybe they'll get a raise, maybe they won't, but they'll still be out there shopping. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's so funny. It, we, we get uh, all Twitter about consumer discretionary, nervous about it. People back in 2009, I'm going to just take you real quick back to 2009. They said the consumer would be in a cave, never to spend again. They'd be choking on debt. And um, it, it was over. And you know what? The best performing sector in the S&P 500 is by a moonshot since 2009, consumer discretionary. Wow. So you should buy Tiffany's and Starbucks and you know, there's just so many business models in entertainment and leisure. So the ones that we like, that I would, I'll just mention names and we can go wherever you want yeah. to go. Uh, Best Buy, Las Vegas Sands, Marriott. Best Buy. I want yeah. to talk about Best Buy. New CEO uh, announced today. Um, Hubert Jolie had done, uh, by all accounts, a really good job sort of bringing them a little bit more uh, into the main, focusing on services and whatnot. Uh, why do you like that name? Because retail, obviously, not the most popular sector. Yeah, moment. again, that's where maybe if you just stop and smell the roses a little bit and not just don't jump to conclusions, oh, oh my goodness, Amazon, right. they're going to take over the world. Now they're working with Amazon. They are. Isn't that something? So if you can't beat them, you know, mm-hmm. kind of partner with them and join them. That's a big part of it. And I think people are starting to realize that in certain areas of retail, being able to demonstrate, mm-hmm. provide advice, and then just installation and those kinds of things, 
that in-store maybe is a better business model. Even Jeff Bezos would see that, say that, I think, in some situations. And so here you have a, a, a company that actually is generating really mid-teens now earnings growth based on comp sales somewhere in the mid-single digits because of this business model. And while they're doing that, they're reinvesting in growth. Right. So Smart Home, for example, mm-hmm. and this huge sales force that they've built out to actually go out into the home and say, you know, you could buy these five appliances and become more working? efficient. It's working, yeah. They've gone from 300 to 500 folks. And there's no way to really, um, you know, quantify that other than to see the, the pace of the growth in their comp sales and you know that they're continuing to invest and build it out. And they well, one wouldn't would do that. they wouldn't add, right, to the amount of people who are going out to your homes unless it's working. have got 500 of them now, yeah. That have... stock is up 52% since uh, Christmas Eve. Wow. Huge bounce. Did you guys buy, add more Christmas Eve? We added, but we owned it also. So you took a hit, that. but we then took you, a hit. Yes. But you bounced back as well. Yes. And there's a dividend to boot. Yes. FedEx. Talk to us about that one. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we came out of Boeing to buy FedEx, and so we had bought Boeing also in the, when everyone was so depressed, you know, and crabby back in December. We really felt like, okay, this is a buying opportunity mm-hmm. for Boeing. We got a nice 30% gain and said, wait a minute. You know, when you have these kinds of headlines and production cuts and more to come, take your 35%, be happy, and, uh, and maybe move on. FedEx, on the other hand, had missed for two quarters. There was concern about an acquisition that they had done in right. Europe, right? right? And so there was a cyber attack. It's TNT, right? TNT. Right. Yeah. Which UPS yeah. initially wanted. They couldn't get that done, right? But FedEx ultimately got it. That's correct. And actually, th- that positions very well for international growth. And they're working through those problems because of the cyber attack. Uh, billing was a real issue. It was just chaos. They're fixing that. And then they've invested in so many other areas of their core businesses within freight and ground. Domestically, they're doing really mm-hmm. well. And we just feel like, you know, it's, it's cheap. And you've got, again, um, an overreaction on the downside with kind of mid, um, you know, double-digit growth in, in our earnings. And it's very, very cheap name. Always love catching up with uh, Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities for Mariner Wealth Advisors, based over in Cincinnati, here with us in New York City, where the sun is shining now. Carol Masser. I know. Did you check I it out? I it sort of came in. A little in. bit. Yeah. A little sort of. bit. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.